It's six o'clock in London, it's 1 p.m. in New York, 1 a.m. in Hong Kong, 3 a.m. in Sydney, 10 a.m. in San Francisco, and 10.30 at night in Mumbai. Greetings, good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, depending on where you are in this wonderful world today. Welcome to IPO Vid Live number five, our fifth live stream in the series with an extra special guest today. The stock market is going up and away in the USA, albeit index concentration is a concern for many. The top 10 companies in the S&P 500 now comprise more than 27% of the index's market weight, according to Market Watch. Meanwhile, over at the European Union, Brexit is in danger of descending into what sounds like a plotline from a Louis de Funès film of the 1950s or 60s. The European Union doesn't know its own rules, so therefore it can't judge the UK's. Discount Kafka from a rather curious regime. The European Union has warned the City of London it faces a longer wait for market access after Brexit. Or, to reinterpret that headline, the European Union is risking bankruptcy by cutting off its vital money spigot during an unprecedented squeeze on the economy. If the European Union insists on doubling down in this instance, then the UK as well as thin its rights to start demanding the European Union banks in the UK are fully capitalised and not relying on the balance sheet pass-through to their headquarters back on the continent. Waiving that already existent in UK law position in front of the EU negotiators surely will bring common sense all around. Nothing ought to get a dose of reality back into the protest than the simple sentence, we will end the look-through provision on your balance sheets. Hashtag simples, I would have thought. Meanwhile, the defence within the European Union of we don't know what our own rules are right now not only smacks of an abject lack of management ability, but suggests the UK may wish to concern itself with whether the European Union is sufficiently capable of being equivalent to the rules of the world's largest international financial centre going forward. With index concentration now a thing in the United States of America, those blessed with a sufficiently sized balance sheet can borrow almost with impunity. Take the case of, well, the parish of exchanges, as Exchange Invest Daily, my newsletter, has been discussing just recently, the Intercontinental Exchange. They acquired Ellie May last week. The $11 billion purchase adds to the ICE mortgage electronification strategy. Of course, with a mix of equity and mostly cash for the purchase, that cash needs to be found somewhere. And at this stage, a couple of ratings agencies visibly blanched. Moody's dropped ice a notch. S&P dropped them two notches. For what it's worth, I don't think it was deserved. But then again, if rating agencies were taking my opinions into the mix a priori, there might be a broader issue for the markets. However, when the funding was announced this week, ICE opted for $6.5 billion in senior notes. And you all but have to give your money away to get to the short end of the yield curve. <laughs> yield curve. Now, there's an oxymoron. For those of you who are not aware, well, anyway, that's Economics 101. We'll talk about that some other day. Wait for it. Those three-year notes are paying a whopping 0.7%. 12-year notes are paying 1.85%. 20 years are at a giddy 1.25%. Well, if you go super long, you can go oh, up to... 3% on 40-year money by lending it to the Intercontinental Exchange. Let's just take a step back for a moment. I am a huge believer in the Intercontinental Exchange and its management. But what does this tell you about the macroeconomy when you can borrow for 40 years at 3% from a company which only celebrated its 20th anniversary this year? Fret not investors, it looks to be amongst the best bond deals out there if that's what you're looking to acquire. But also bear in mind that after some rating agency shufflings, ICE is actually borrowing more cheaply than they did as recently as May. So in other words, lending is getting cheaper and cheaper and cheaper in the post-COVID era. At that point during May, ICE were able to price 10-year notes at 2.1% and their 30 years were still at 3%. But nowadays, they're getting all the way out to 40 years for their 3% money. I have no qualms about the ICE business model. Of course not. I'm a huge fan of exchanges and well-managed exchanges at that. No, rather, the key point is that these levels of outrageously subsidized interest rates, I worry enormously about how long the Fed money printing machine can defy economic gravity. 
the same time, good for ICE, good for CFO Scott Hill for taking advantage of these rates and getting funding which looked to position his desire to fund the whole new, exciting LMA debt at below 3%, therefore funding a superb interesting business process, well below and being well on target for the 3% that they're looking at. By means of comparison, S&P Global announced an expiration this week of a tender offer. They're buying back outstanding notes due 2037 and 2048. With ICE borrowing money at 3%, why would S&P want to keep paying for 18 years of bond coupon at 4.5% when they can clearly lock in at least 150 and more basis points below that level? It's natural. Good companies will refund in this environment. I suppose bad ones may do as well when the Fed is so open about buying anything. What is unnatural is the post-COVID, well, ongoing COVID, currently artificially supported Fed buys anything policy. This is funding the corporate bond sector in a fashion akin to a stereotypical footballer's wife or girlfriend on steroids. Well, the demise of Kenny Lopez leaves us all ruining just what elements of government we might advance in a Schumpeterian fashion from his hit song, If I Had a Hammer. The COVID crisis has revealed the bold ineptitude of far too much of the political government blob the world over, and sovereign risk is growing. I'm not sure that has yet filtered through to the QE mavens of the central banks, and it probably takes a while yet for it to hit the major economies, but we're already seeing massive pressures on the likes of Lebanon, Iran and Turkey, which is a full-blown lira crisis in Turkey, with a big balance of payments crisis perhaps sadly inevitable. However, over in the United States of America, God bless America, markets are buoyant right now. And that has enabled huge amounts of new equity funding, a wonderful thing in recent months from the major American exchanges. The NASDAQ index is on every television news presenter's lips these days. Television, oh, um, it's a thing a bit like live streaming, only it's a bit more buttoned up and weirdly, they only let you watch programs at a fixed time. No, I don't think it'll catch on either. Anyway, back to the live stream. NASDAQ's fundamental message in markets is to maximize access and minimize friction, according to their trailblazing CEO, Adina Friedman. At the head of an excellent management team who makes excellent cases for capitalism and its many advantages across U.S. airwaves throughout this pandemic. Of course, as the mainstay of American equity trading, and with the sort of bright boffins whose product development skills are so prized, they license their products to the likes of the Chicago Mercantile Exchange. Watch out, VIX. VolQ is coming for you. NASDAQ VolQ could eat your lunch. Driven by technology with an ESOS for equal opportunity, the CEO's espoused passion for providing fair treatment of and by suppliers, NASDAQ is a big corporation helping the entrepreneurial economy grow opportunities for those companies and the individuals involved. The positivity of Adina Friedman, the CEO, and the corporate cooperative capitalism thesis is sound, sensible, and a good thing to help our economy at this point in time. As part of that symbiotic relationship between nimble large businesses such as Nasdaq and nimble small ones such as this humble live stream organization, I am delighted to welcome in that spirit of Adina Friedman's cooperative capitalism mantra, the president of Nasdaq Europe, Bjorn Siburn. Bjorn has over a decade of experience at Nasdaq. He's emerged as an influential leader within the group organization and indeed the broader industry. Prior to his current role as president of European markets, which we'll be hearing about in a moment, he was executive vice president for Global Information Services, based in that wonderful, thriving, incredible metropolis that NASDAQ calls home New York City. He's also previously led NASDAQ's global commodities business while also serving as president of the NASDAQ Copenhagen Exchange. With experience from both sides of the transaction business, with experience from the Nordic brokerage business and various diverse leadership processes throughout the NASDAQ Nordic exchanges and the beating heart headquarters of NASDAQ itself in Times Square, Good evening. Where in the world are you today? Good evening and thanks for inviting me. So I'm uh, today here in Copenhagen at my home. So I'm working from home today, so I'm sitting in my home in Copenhagen. Excellent, Bjorn. And so tell me a little bit, I mean, obviously it's interesting because 
A lot of people think about NASDAQ as being a huge American corporation, and they couldn't be more wrong, correct? So, first of all, NASDAQ is a great corporation. We are. Yeah, no doubt it's a great corporation, but it's not just an American one. No, uh, we are much more than US. We are a US company, but uh, we have strong presence in Europe, in the Nordics. Uh, our biggest office is not New York, it is actually our office in Stockholm, we have, where we have 900 employees. Uh, a lot of our skills and competence around tech is actually based on, on the teams we have in the Nordics. So uh, we are a US company, but we are very strong in, in Europe, in the Nordics, and we have around 1,500 employees in Europe. That's incredible. And what's the sort of total headcount of NASDAQ roughly? So it's a little bit more than 4,000. So uh, a big chunk is actually based here in Europe. That's a great thing, isn't it? Because traditionally American multinationals, usually their European arms are only a few hundred people. Whereas we're in the situation with a fascinating a vast number of employees across Europe. You've really got a very significant footprint. Yeah, so I think what is interesting is actually you need to look at the history from NASDAQ. NASDAQ started as a US company, US equities, US listings. Uh, but uh, around 12 years ago, NASDAQ made the decision uh, to look at a global expansion, uh, acquiring OMX, uh, in, which is the, the Nordic exchanges, uh, Denmark, Sweden, Finland, and the Baltics, and Iceland. Uh, and that gave a global reach and it also gave a lot of capabilities within the tech space. So now we provide a technology solution for more than 130 exchanges and marketplaces around the globe. So we are a global company. We are also strong in, in Asia. So we are a global company and we are a tech company more than a C group. It's fascinating, isn't it? I mean, your origins, obviously, as NASDAQ are a huge technology business, but then separately, the Scandinavian business, the OMX business that was absorbed by NASDAQ, what, 12 years ago, was a, really, it was the first electronically driven exchange business in Europe. That's, that's correct. And, and, and I think actually OMX uh, was, was a merger between the exchange in Stockholm and the technology company OM uh, had a lot of early uh, moves into the tech space, being one of the first adopters in making exchanges electronically. So there has uh, been a long and strong history around building markets and uh, based on technology. Fascinating. So tell us a little bit about yourself. How did you get to NASDAQ I mean, roughly a decade ago? Yeah, so I joined NASDAQ a little bit more than 10 years ago. Uh, I was uh, one of the customers uh, with clear views on how to how the exchange should be operating. So I, I moved from, from being a customer to the exchange, uh, being CEO at the Copenhagen Stock Exchange where I started, but also responsible for equity trading uh, and equity derivative trading. So uh, my journey was to make sure we had what I would call the perfect trading platform. Uh, and we implemented that as a part of the merger with NASDAQ. So we launched INIT uh, as the trading platform, which we also use in US. So a big part of, of my life has been equities, but also technology and building markets that uh, provides efficient and transparent solutions for equity traders, later on also bond traders and fixed income traders. Fantastic. And it's, it's been a, quite a journey for you because obviously you you started in Copenhagen, then you moved on to the USA as well, and you were working in, in New York's, the New York headquarters of NASDAQ for, for several years. Yeah, so I actually started in, in working out of Copenhagen, but uh, probably four, four days a week in, in Stockholm. A big part of my life has actually been in Stockholm. It is our biggest office. It's where we have most of our tech capabilities. Uh, that is our European headquarters. So I spend a lot of time in, in Stockholm uh, and it's important for, for being close to the customers, it's important to be close to the colleagues. So I spend a lot of time not only running Copenhagen Stock Exchange, but actually being with, with my colleagues in, mainly in, in Sweden. Um, and then after some years, I, I moved to US. Uh, I stayed there for uh, almost three years, running our data and index business. Uh, and uh, that was a fantastic journey, being closer to the head, headquarter in New York but also see, uh, see how you run and operate the markets in US versus Europe, which is different.
That's absolutely fascinating altogether. And obviously, the data and index business is really important because, in fact, we're going to be on a data and index theme for the next couple of weeks. So our next guest is going to be Alex Maturi, who used to run until just a couple of months ago, S&P Global Indexes. So tell us a little bit. I mean, you know, obviously, you've moved on from that position now, so I'm not expecting you to tell us what's happening today. But, I mean, NASDAQ has been really a prime mover in trying to make the most of the big data of modern electronic financial markets. Yeah, so, so what has been important for, for NASDAQ, and I think uh, uh, we announced uh, our strategy um, half a year after uh, Adina took over uh, as CEO, we announced our strategy where we said we will focus even more on technology, we will focus even more on data, data analytics. So data is a big part of what we do. And I think why is data important? When you trade equities, fixed income, uh, commodities, uh, transparency, access to data is important. So for us, the data part is an important part of what we do. Uh, so the data companies is an important part of, of our business and also something we will continue to focus on uh, for the future. Very interesting. And obviously in Europe, it must be quite an exciting data challenge because you have how many markets do NASDAQ operate in Europe for starters? So, so if, if we look at the exchanges we run, so it's, it's mm -hmm. the Swedish exchange, the Danish exchange, the Finnish exchange, the three Baltic exchanges and, and Iceland uh, on the equity side. And then we have one in Norway on the commodity side. So if you add that up, that is, that is if I can calculate right, eight exchanges. Uh, uh, but of course, then we provide technology solutions for other exchanges in, in Europe. So where we help them not only running the exchange, but also data distribution. So, so that's, a, that's a big part of what we do uh, and, and focus on. It's fascinating altogether because, I mean, you've got eight very, really diverse exchanges. I mean, one might say the Baltic equity exchanges are roughly similar, but each of them involves a different regulatory relationship. And obviously, it's quite difficult to manage the whole technology infrastructure across all of those borders. So I think actually where we see, see a lot of benefits is we run uh, all the Nordic exchanges on the team tech stack. And by the way, our equity markets in the Nordics is on Pinet, the trading system that we also use in US. So we benefit from scale, we benefit from our skills capabilities in US and Europe and combine that. So I think that's a very important part. And if you look at it from a customer point of view, if they want, if they are trading US equities today, it's easier for them to get access to, to our Nordic markets because they're familiar with the technology, they are familiar with the way we run and operate our markets. So it's actually easier for a new uh, bank or broker to, exit, uh, uh, to, to get access to the Nordic markets because they're familiar with the tech technology that we use both in US and in Europe. That's a very good point, actually, because, yes, the unification of all of that technology is obviously incredibly useful. And also you make the point about INET. And, of course, as we know, INET managed to process, what was it, 62 billion messages in the United States equity markets for NASDAQ alone on the 20th of February, which is a, a pretty staggering figure. I mean, you compare it to the fact that I think roughly every Android phone in the world produces about 80 billion messages in a day, which is uh, quite amazing that that just went through the U.S. exchange market. Now, ladies and gentlemen, the floor is open for questions. And actually, we have a question already, which is great. Martin Watkins, who was our guest last week in a very illuminating discussion on this topic of financial market structures and beyond. So he's interested here, Bjorn, in quite a specific question. Because you own the three Baltic exchanges and you also own their CSDs, the settlement processes for those marketplaces, very interested to hear, Martin asks, your view of CSDR, the upcoming regulation to, well, regulate CSDs, and your perspective on the future for the saturation of Europe according to 39 traditional CSDs. Yes, so uh, we run the three Baltic CSDs, and by the way, we also run the CSD in Iceland. Uh, what is interesting here is... Uh, if you look back in 2008, where MIFID 1 was implemented, the whole idea was to create competition to open up the markets. What we have in the CSD space is basically local monopolies in each of the European countries. I think what I hope and expect to see, not tomorrow, not within a year, but in, within 
the next three to five years to see increased competition within the CSD space. We will see uh, CSDs competing across the borders. We will probably also see consolidation. I think it's also a scale game, like you see it on the exchange side. So uh, it will be very interesting to see. Uh, we will see the uh, what I would call the MIFID version on within the CSD, where we'll see increased competition and you will see uh, consolidation and you will see cross-border transactions like we saw post-MIFID 1. Uh, and I would actually claim that MIFID 1 on the competitive side have benefited uh, many of the investors, the banks and brokers. Uh, we have a more fragmented world, but we also have a strong competition when it comes to equity trading, which was the outcome of MIFID 1. Indeed. I mean, it's very interesting you look at MIFID 1 because everybody said, you know, lots of people said it would be the death of exchanges, it would be a terrible problem. And yet here we are in a very hyper-competitive marketplace across Europe. And actually, major exchange groups have gone from strength to strength. And, and NASDAQ in particular, you've done sensationally well out of what has become a very, very competitive marketplace. But clearly, it must be quite fascinating in your role because if you take, for example, you know, the Swedish market, which is an extremely advanced, very liquid marketplace with a lot of great stocks, and compare that to the Baltic exchanges, which are obviously much less well-developed. They've only been free of, of communism for 25 years, and they're, they're also very small populations. I mean, you put the three Baltic states together, and they're not even, what, they're just barely half the population of Sweden. That must be quite a challenge. Yeah, uh... It is a challenge. At the same time, you need to recognize the differences. So we recognize that the Swedish market is different from, from the Baltic markets and different from the Icelandic market. And of course, Sweden is our biggest market uh, in, in the Nordics. It's the biggest uh, NASDAQ European market. Uh, it's also the most sophisticated market, by the way, with a lot of retail flow. Uh, when it comes to IPOs, it's the also when it comes to SME listings, it's the most successful IPO market for the last three, three, four years. So it is a very sophisticated market with certain needs. And then you have the Baltic markets or the Icelandic markets with less volume, uh, relatively young equity markets, where we are using the same technology, but of course the setup and demands for those markets are not always the same as it is in, in Sweden. And I should actually mention that we benefit from being a part of, of NASDAQ again, because some of the trends, some of the needs that we see from a custom point of view, we see it from US, and then we implement it also in the Nordics. A good example here is, is uh, what we have seen um, around high-frequency high trading. We implemented INET because there was a need for speed and for easier access from uh, banks and brokers outside the Nordics, and that was what we delivered with the, the launch of INET uh, almost 10 years back. Really, really interesting. And obviously, as you say, it is quite fascinating to compare the different markets that we see around the, around the region because you've got quite a differentiation, despite the fact that you're not hugely geographically spread out across, across Europe in the same way. How do you feel that the, for example, things like the, the commodities markets mix in with that? Because you've obviously got a successful niche Norwegian commodities franchise, and you used to be in charge of commodities globally, in fact, I think, if, I, if my memory serves me correctly. Yeah, so so if you look at our commodity business, which, which is mainly out of out of the Nordics, and the biggest part is the power exchange we have out of out of Norway. Um, it fits pretty well to, to where we are. Uh, remember that uh, we use the same trading platform. So when you trade equity derivatives, uh, fixed income products, but also commodities, it's trading on the same platform. So we reuse the same technology for the platform. Uh, but it's also the data, data distribution. We use the same data distribution for our fixed income products, equity products, and also commodity products. And yeah. then, of course, the clearinghouse we have, we also have a clearinghouse that we use both for commodities, fixed income uh, derivatives, and also equity derivatives. So again, it's scale and it's great match towards the business business we have. Um, and right now we are trying to, to make our roads into the Norwegian equity derivatives, which is a market that is mainly driven by Oslo Stock Exchange. And we have captured a big part of that market because we have a clearinghouse, because we have a trading system where we trade the Swedish derivatives and customers want to have, trade the Nordic market in one system and 
cleared in one system, uh, in one clearinghouse. So we get the benefits of, of not only being strong in Sweden, but being strong in the Nordics, also on commodities. I, I hear you there, and certainly as an end user, I definitely like the idea of using as few clearinghouses as possible for positions in options and single stock futures and so on. Now we've got a fascinating question here, although I've got to attach, well, a little health warning to it because clearly you've got Lesmail here and Lesmail is, as we all know, a loyal Nasdaq customer having just re-signed as the CEO of the Dubai Golden Commodities Exchange last week for a fantastic new fangled Nasdaq system that's going to upgrade all of his different technology stack. And good evening, Les. It's lovely to hear from you. And by the way, congratulations. What was it? 357% growth in foreign currency trading recently. Which, strangely enough, brings him to the question, given the strong footprint that NASDAQ have in various aspects of the product curve, what about the missing C? You've got the fixed income. What about currencies? Have you any plans in FX? Yeah, so first of all, uh, congratulations to, to Les for, for, for uh, deciding to use NASDAQ technology. I think it, it is a clever choice, and he's joining the 140 customers uh, using Nasdaq on on the technology side, so I think that was a, that was a good choice, and it's great to see that that, that Les and the team uh, are performing great. So first of all, uh, thanks for the question. Uh, the C uh, FX, uh, we have looked at that a couple of times from a Nasdaq point of view. Uh, we have not really found the, found the right match into that market. It is not something that is is our core competence today. Uh, we are much stronger on equities, fixed income, and, and commodities. Uh, it is something that we are evaluating all the time. Uh, but uh, at this point in time, we have not found the, the right way into that market. We are good on the tech stack, but you need more than just technology. You need to operate it, you need to run it, and you also need to have the right sales competence to, to uh, move into a new asset class. And we have been a little bit hesitant on, on moving into that. Uh, at this point in time. Very interesting. Thank you very much, Les, for that great question. I hope we'll see you on IPO Live in the near future. You can talk about your many achievements with DGCX as you're going from strength to strength in the Middle East, powered by NASDAQ, indeed. So, Bjorn, that's actually very interesting because you power, what is it, 120, 130 markets worldwide. And actually, the big technology hubs that you have are scattered all around the world, but primarily Stockholm. Yeah, and it's, it's based on, on, on the history. So, uh, and it goes back to what I said in the beginning of, of the interview. Uh, OMX, um, uh, the franchise uh, out of the Nordics, mainly out of Stockholm in Sweden. Uh, when NASDAQ acquired OMX back in the days, they acquired a lot of skills and competence around running markets. And OMX started a journey selling technology solutions to exchanges around the globe almost uh, 30 years ago. So it has a long history, built a sales force in Asia, have successful selling to exchanges in Europe, all around the globe. And combining the tech capabilities from OMX with the Nasdaq brand and the Nasdaq outreach has just been a fantastic journey. And it is, has been one of the fastest growing businesses for, for NASDAQ, um, and it's not only exchanges that we provide solutions for. I think that's worth mentioning. It is other type of markets or services where you want to have a match between a buyer and a seller and also data distribution. And that's what we uh, help many, many markets uh, around the globe uh, providing. So it's not only towards exchanges, it is also dark pools. It is also uh, other type of markets that we support. That's a very good point, actually. And I mean, at the sort of extremes of, of what you do, uh, as opposed to the inets of what you do, I suppose there could be a quip in there about your tech stack. The interesting fact is that you do power markets, you power data, and you also have these outlying markets. I mean, you've got the, the New York Interactive Advertising Exchange or something, which is coming on stream in the near future, signed last year. And you've also got the Hong Kong Jockey Club, who use a lot of your technology for processing, which brings us back to data, because everything is just a data processing business. I mean, just where it is actually very complex and difficult to do. Yes, and, and Hong Kong Jockey, 
Jockey Club is a great example of how you can use our technology. So think about it. If we are only providing solutions for changes, it will be a relatively small and narrowed market. But I think actually the opportunity to run to provide solution matching engine data distribution on other type of industry, Hong Kong Jockey Club is a good example. It just shows how many opportunities we, we actually have uh, for providing our services in the future. The need for transaction, the need for transparency, the need for people to interact fast in a nice and easy way will only increase in many different markets in the future. So I think we actually have found a sweet spot uh, with our technology solution uh, that works so well. It's fascinating. It's really, really interesting altogether how you've managed to find that sweet spot, but also actually to go back to something that you mentioned in passing. And I think it's important to emphasize again, that incredible sweet spot of IPO listings, particularly around your Swedish SME market. In fact, I'm coming today from Valletta in Malta. As you know, the second biggest industry in Malta is iGaming. And in fact, precisely none of those companies are listed on the Malta Stock Exchange. They're all listed at NASDAQ Stockholm, which is just incredible. And that's just one of many niches that you've really managed to drive home. And I can't remember the numbers. I mean, you're knocking out sort of 50, 50 plus IPOs most years at the moment, if I remember correctly. So, so if you look at the, the performance the last three years, we have had uh, a little bit more than 150 IPOs uh, within the SME segment. And we are we are the most successful exchange uh, in the SME segment uh, in Europe. Uh, we have uh, built over many years uh, strong skills and competence to help SMEs. We have a lot of great advisors in Sweden. We have a lot of retail flow going directly into the market. So the retail participation trading SMEs uh, is very high. So we have online brokers providing a great service to the retail customers trading the SME segment and the access to capital, not only from retail, but also from the institutional side, pension funds, family office is great. So we have through a, more than a handful of years built this great uh, environment and, and when you see companies uh, list in Stockholm successfully, get easy access to capital, uh, raise money again if they want to expand and grow. Uh, that's why, why exchanges are here. And we have just been, we have just created this fantastic setup in Stockholm. Some of it is also driven by great tax regulation in Sweden. And we try to basically copy and, and, and roll that concept out to the rest of the Nordic markets. And I think in the light of Brexit, I think actually the momentum on the Swedish uh, SME market will only increase because that makes the Swedish uh, market even more relevant uh, than before. Absolutely. I think it's, I think it's quite incredible that the traction you've had. And I mean, 150 IPOs is just a sensational amount of capital being raised to provide jobs for the economy, whether it's in Europe or elsewhere in the world. And that's a very, very important thing because Europe obviously needs it. Well, however, Capital Markets Union ultimately develops. We, we might get back to that in a second, but actually we have another question from a viewer. Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. Please keep the questions flowing in. We're delighted to see them. So we, we've got one very, very simple question to come via Facebook. How did your offices cope with lockdown? And I think the question obviously here is, we know that one country in Europe did not lock down and it happens to be Georgia's yeah. office. Yeah, so, so first of all, uh, at NASDAQ, we have more than 50 offices around the globe. So, of course, we have to, to not only deal with the, with the challenge uh, of, of COVID in, in Sweden or in US, we have 50 offices around the globe. So, it has been a global effort. Uh, I should also mention that we, we started early in the process because we have offices in Singapore and Hong Kong. So, mm -hmm. of course, uh, the COVID start of, of in Asia gave us a relatively early start and we started to look at this at, a, at an early stage. So we have had a process where we looked at health and safety for our employees and colleagues and customers has been very important for us. At the same time, we wanted to secure that we were able to manage the increased uh, velocity, the increased turnover that was significant, especially in February and March. Uh, so we decided at a relatively early stage to uh, implement our BCP plan. And as a part of that, uh, we have had people working from home 
more or less across all our offices at a very early stage. And we still have that for quite many offices, especially in US. But whereas in, in the European offices, we have around 10% uh, of the workforce back in the office. So we open up the office slowly, but we actually take a very cautious approach. Um, and we have been able to run our market without any issues uh, working from home, which I'm proud of uh, and I'm happy that we provided a, a great infrastructure set up for our, our customers. I have to say, I think Bjorn, you're, you're being almost a little bit too modest here because I mean, the incredible NASDAQ achievement is you manage 100% uptime for all of your customers, 130 exchanges in the world and the different markets and everybody else. Unfortunately, it wasn't the best quarter for the Hong Kong Jockey Club because they weren't able to have that much horse racing, but everywhere else, your volumes were simply astounding. I mean, whether it was on your own proprietary markets in Sweden as well as in the USA, it has been quite a, an incredible baptism of fire. And obviously your planning went well, but I'm sure there must have been moments when you when you did have to really run around um, perhaps your living room, perhaps your home office, but consider the, the challenges you were facing. Yeah, I think I think a couple of important points here. So uh, testing your BCP plan rehearsal, we did that quite many times last year and the year before. So uh, we had some experience with that, uh, which is important, of course, having such a strong technology team, so credit to them uh, has been very important. We have, of course, been monitoring our system even closer uh, than we normally do. So, and also be a little bit reluctant on new releases or be more careful about new releases. Mm -hmm. So I actually felt that we, it was, it was many different drivers that have actually helped us. And as you said, delivering 100% uptime, which we have had uh, for this year, but we are humble and and we know that we need to make sure we also have 100% uptime for the rest remaining part of the year. So that's why I'm not bragging too much about it. Uh, it is something we focus on every day. Uh, and what is important for me is we make sure that our investors can trade uh, the shares listed with us in a nice and easy way. I should probably mention that one of the pressure we had during COVID was there was a pusher for some that we should close the markets, that we should implement short selling band, uh, adjusting the opening hours, and we were pretty firm. Uh, shortening the opening hours does not help, closing the market does for sure not help, implementing short selling band will only increase uh, volatility, uh, widen the spread. So we were pretty firm on our views on opening hours, but also implementing short selling band. And I actually felt that was a great strategy and it benefited our markets and our customers. And that's obviously a big issue for you because you are dealing, I mean, in the United States of America, they're dealing effectively with single regulator, or at least they're dealing with two regulators, one for futures options, CFTC, one the SEC. But again, you've got to deal with nine different regulators and also whatever comes out of Brussels and you've got a permanent Brussels regulatory team who are all staying on top of that. It's, it's got to be quite a challenge when markets are breaking down and you're seeing, I mean, breaking down, I mean, in price formation action. And you've got this incredible amount of volume taking place and instantly political qualms, quibbles and worries come up. But I think that's also where, of course, our experience uh, running markets across the world uh, helps us, but also having uh, having done your homework, I, I mentioned the BCP plan, but also having clear views on what is good for the market, implementing a short selling ban, which some people actually try to force or, force, or actually mentioned many times that we should do. Uh, we have started uh, the past, we have seen the impact from the past, so implement short selling ban will only increase uh, volatility, uh, widen the spreads and and also make it more difficult for market makers to uh, to make tight markets and also limit the ability to hedge your positions. So we actually had a pretty clear view before COVID around this because we learned from the past, we listened to to the experience from from the oil market. So I think actually a big part of running a market is also having the history, having the insight to what have worked and what have not worked. And I think that that helped us uh, quite uh, quite a lot. And of course, understanding the nuances from different markets, uh, understanding the US market, understanding our own markets in the Nordic, but also having insight to what is driving the markets in Asia, where we're not always experts, but we run the markets, so we have some understandings 
around what is going on in, in Asia, at least from a tech point of view, but also trying to operate in, in, in Asia as well. And that's fascinating because, as you say, you know, dealing with regulators is always somewhat of a challenge, particularly when there's a market panic, let's face it, because everybody is worried about what's happening and there are political forces that are pushing on the regulators as well. And I suppose that brings you back all the way to the original OM history, because when the Swedish government tried to have one bond withholding tax, that was the creation of OM London Exchange, which was actually the first overseas outpost of the OM empire, which went on to become this behemoth that's now a vast part of the Nasdaq empire. It's it's a fascinating development, and yes, you're quite right. I mean, interacting through you know the associations and things like FASA, the European Federation of Securities Exchanges, is also vital at this sort of time to get the right message across. So, ladies and gentlemen, we are coming into the last twenty minutes of our live stream today. We are live on, I do believe, LinkedIn, Facebook, and YouTube. My name is Patrick L. Young, and I hope that you're finding this. An interesting discussion. I'm certainly gripped talking to Bjorn Sibbon. It's great to have the president of NASDAQ European Markets here. I would love to say live in the studio, but here live in Copenhagen because everything's socially distanced in these COVID times. If you've got a question, drop them into the chat to us. Bjorn, very interesting when you, you talk about you know Asian markets and their relationship to everything and the fundamental interconnectedness of all things. How do you find operating a major international technology operation from basically the suburbs just outside of, of Stockholm. But but I think I think we have we have and I think what is important here is we use our own technology. So like we take our own medicine. So we we use NASDAQ technology of course to run our own markets and of course we care a lot uh, for our customers and I think it, it, it's also strong proof points to them that they see us using the technology that they are using. So I think that's an important part. And of course, been running markets uh, across the world for, for more than 20 years helps us uh, doing that. We have a lot of experience. And, and, and as you said earlier, we have performed uh, super well uh, during COVID from an operation point of view, no downtime. Uh, and it's, it's a lot of experience, it's a lot of training. Um, so I think actually that has benefited us, uh, and whether it's out of Sweden or some part is also driven out of US, uh, it's a good mix, and we have actually teams that cover each other. So it's not only Stockholm; it's actually many different parts of Nasdaq office around the globe, uh, securing that we have support twenty four seven. So we actually have a, a great setup. Uh, running the markets, but also securing that we have eyes and ears on the markets all the time. And how do you find, I mean, the diverse the technology stack that can be ubiquitous? And obviously everybody around the world is a human being who works for NASDAQ, but nonetheless, there are a lot of cultural issues and other issues that arise. How do you find it even managing the slightly diverse cultural aspect? Because you've also got obviously an office in London, for example. Yeah, so, so I think that's, of course, something we spend a lot of time on, more than 4,000 employees uh, around the globe, right? And of course, if you take COVID as an example, uh, the impact started in, in Asia, so we need to understand uh, the need from our Hong Kong office and office we have, have in China. Then, then we saw the second wave or the first wave, you could call it, in Europe, and then US came a little bit later. So we have tried to to handle the COVID situation, the COVID challenges uh, around the globe, uh, understanding the different needs in different markets. Uh, and of course, uh, US is in a different situation where schools, many schools in US are still closed, where schools are open in most part of, of Europe. Uh, so it's different situations. We need to handle it in a different way. We need to understand the cultural differences, uh, Europe versus uh, US uh, versus Asia. So I think actually, but I think actually we have done a great job working on the cultural differences under Adina's leadership, uh, having an open mindset and also understanding that cultures are different, marks are different and try to accept that and understand that when we implement solutions, uh, whether it's around market setup or whether it's around how we handle a COVID situation for different offices uh, in, around the globe. 
Very, very interesting. And as you say, certainly, I mean, from the very top of the organization, not just yourself, but Adina as the group CEO, are very, very clearly stressing the cultural issues. Now, we have another question which has come in in relation to technology. It's Martin Watkins again, our excellent guest from last week. He's mentioning here the fact that you, of course, have the, well, amongst other innovative leadership things that you've done over the course of the last decade, you introduced a proxy voting blockchain solution in Estonia. He's fascinated to know how fast and how deep are NASDAQ planning to implement new technologies to evolve or indeed revolutionize exchanges and financial market infrastructures overall? So that's a, that's a key part of, of, of what we do. And I actually like the example here because we actually launched that, I think it was almost five years ago. Uh, mm -hmm. It just shows that we try to be on the forefront on, on around technology. I think also uh, our solutions around uh, surveilling the markets, the, what the solution called SMARTS that the company we acquired around 10 years ago, uh, which is our surveillance solution for markets and different, uh, different uh, exchanges. Uh, that is something where we try to be at the forefront all the time that we try to be ahead of the curve using elbows to help the surveillance team, not only for us, but for, for our customers being even smarter the way you look at the markets. So I think actually we try in many different areas to try to be early adopters, try to be smart. Uh, also, when you look at INET uh, on uh, processing the transaction, we were one of the first one being super fast. So I think we try to be at the forefront in many different areas. Uh, but I think it has to start with the customers and the customer needs. Uh, and of course, uh, in this case, uh, the proxy voting solution, uh, you could actually say we launched that five years ago as a test case in, in the Baltics. And that is something that we can roll out across the many different customers we have on the tech side. So when we find a great smart solution that solves a problem for a customer, uh, sometimes ourselves, the beauty with the setup is with having more than 130 customers that we can actually implement it and other customers will benefit from that at a later stage. That's the big advantage we have with, with being the leader within the technology side. Very interesting altogether. And if I may ask you, sort of moving on from that, you mentioned the fact that, of course, you made that very successful acquisition of smarts from Professor Mike Akins and his team out of Sydney, whenever it was a decade or so ago. Good evening, Mike, if you happen to be, well, I would imagine somewhat insomniacal if you're watching us at this point. But I know he does check in at least on the... Uh, on the, on the stream when it's been recorded because this live stream, ladies and gentlemen, is still available on Facebook, YouTube, and LinkedIn if you want to go back and check some of the highlights of our conversation with Bjorn in the future. Interesting, you talk about, obviously, the idea that you acquired smarts. What about mergers and acquisitions? How do you view that at the moment in terms of both the technology space and then also the exchange and market infrastructure space? Yeah, so if we start with the acquisition we did, uh, I think it was almost two years ago now, with Sinopur. Uh, yeah. By the way, a Swedish company, uh, one of the leaders uh, around technology solutions for exchanges and marketplaces around the globe. A fantastic match towards the business we have we have uh, uh, at OMX back in the days. So combining those two units has just been outstanding. They had a lot of skills capabilities that we were not as strong as from, from a NASDAQ point of view and combining the two, uh, two units has been great and they are sitting together now in most of them are in the Stockholm office. So I think our offering towards the customers is even better uh, because uh, Sonova as an example was so strong on clearing solutions. Uh, so that was a great match towards uh, NASDAQ's offering uh, as well. So that was one good example of an acquisition where we add skills capabilities to an area where we were strong before, but could need some skills in a certain area within that, that area. And then, of course, I was uh, responsible for the acquisition uh, around investment. And uh, we did that acquisition uh, around three years ago when we announced uh, uh, our strategy, more focus on technology, but also more focus on data and data analytics. Uh, so it shows uh, the acquisition we have done had been relatively closely linked to our strategy, not surprisingly, around technology, but also around data and data analytics. It's very interesting. You probably mentioned, mentioned an interesting acquisition you also did. 
that was Quandl, uh, the Canadian company we acquired um, two and a half years ago, uh, that is, is, is strong on alternative data. So we believe that the future is not only traditional exchange data, but also alternative data. And Quandl is the leading company around alternative data, so gathering data from different sources and distributing that data to uh, hedge funds, buy-side companies that want to have insight to other type of data than is not the traditional data to find alpha in those data. That's fascinating, actually, because you, you, you mentioned there are two really, really interesting deals. Well, three interesting deals all around, but particularly I'm thinking about investments in Quandle because they really were quite different type, well, not types of company, but quite different packages that they brought to the NASDAQ offering. I mean, Sonobra was, Sonobra, no doubt, you're, you're quite right, great company, great technology, helped boost your technology stack in Stockholm. They also had office in Umea, which uh, actually was opened by uh, me. I cut the ribbon there a few years ago. It was a lovely process, lovely evening altogether. And it's fascinating because, you know, investment, I think a lot of people probably have forgotten that you made that acquisition, let alone Quandle. And yet these are regular activities for the Nasdaq Empire. Yes, so so investment and also Quantum has been uh, great uh, transactions, great deals for, for Nasdaq. Uh, and actually it, it strengthened our way into being strong on data, data analytics. Uh, so it has been a great part of execution on our strategy and credit to, to Adina, her leadership, uh, she she started that journey and communicated that strategy when we acquired uh, investment. So it has been a great journey for us. And of course, just being on, only running exchange uh, was a little bit too narrow. So widening it into data, data analytics combined with technology has been a great strategic move for us. And we are executing pretty well on that uh, as we speak. It's, it is. It's fascinating altogether and very interesting how you've been able to integrate companies from multiple different countries into the into the mix of your existing 50 offices or 50 countries worldwide where you have offices, which is quite fascinating altogether. So beyond looking forward, I mean, hopefully sooner or later we'll actually be able to get together and enjoy a coffee or some other slightly stronger beverage person to person. When the world actually exits its COVID crisis, lockdown, and so on, what do you think are the key things to take away that are the opportunities for the NASDAQ business going forward? So maybe if I start with a, with a personal note. So I, I, working from home for, for almost half a year now, I can still go into the Copenhagen office, but my day-to-day my -day office is the Stockholm office. I miss my colleagues being together with them. I miss being close to my customers, meeting customers. Zoom is great, but I, I miss that interaction. Uh, so I look forward to get back to be a little bit closer to my customers and also to be closer to, to my colleagues and see them face to face. Said that, we know things will, will change. It will not be exactly the same as it was uh, one year ago. So we need to sell in a, a different way. We need to do our product innovation, launch a product in a different way. Uh, the good part is we are pretty well set up for that. Um, we are used to working across the globe, not meeting each other face to face. Uh, so I think we are pretty well prepared uh, uh, to work on the, under the new, uh, whatever it will be under the new world. Uh, but I think we are pretty well organized and our ability to run the markets and have 95% of our workforce working from home has worked well. So I think we have a great setup. Um, said that, I look forward to also to meet, meet customers and my colleagues face to face. Yes, it's interesting, isn't it? This big data world, and it's so exciting, and it's wonderful to be able to process everything by computer, and it's incredible what we can manage to do from the comfort of our own homes, live streams included, but it would actually be really nice to go out and meet a few warm-bodied humans that share our passion for business exchanges and customers we could interact with. So, Bjorn, last question. I mean, looking forward, what are the biggest and most exciting concerns or opportunities that you see ahead? So at least if, if it's, first of all, I, I think we, when I look at the NASDAQ strategy, I think we have laid our strategy loud and clear and we are executing on that. So that part is working super well. 
where I see some opportunities is within ESG uh, sustainable uh, solutions. Uh, so that's that's still an area where I see many exchanges being out there talking about they are the leader, uh, they have a lot of offerings. Uh, I actually think that creates a lot of opportunities. Uh, we need to help our customers, the corporates, uh, how to report on ESG, how to figure out how to do it right, how to benchmark themselves. Uh, that is something that we can do a lot for our customers. So that's one part. Then also on the data side around ESG, I think actually uh, there's a lot of data out there. It's still relatively unstructured uh, validation of data. So I think on, on serving the corporate, but also serving the investor community around ESG, uh, is a fantastic opportunity to, for NASDAQ, uh, creating value and support our customers in, in a new demand from the investor landscape uh, that they need to uh, be prepared for. Fascinating altogether, Bjorn Sibern. Thank you very much this evening. You mentioned opportunities aplenty, the achievements of the NASDAQ technology stack, and obviously the excellent management that NASDAQ has brought to markets around the world, developing, creating, powering an incredible efficiency, 62 billion messages in one day alone in the US stock market. And that's not even accounting for the messages your nine markets were undertaking at that, at that same time. You also mentioned the whole concept of ESG, a huge opportunity for the financial firmament. And indeed, it makes me think about, well, new content this week, because investors are getting very excited away from the madding crowd of corporate bond issues Airbnb is reportedly close to filing paperwork for its long-anticipated IPO. If that happens, it would put the home rental and travel giant, which, by the way, as far as I'm concerned, happens to be essentially an exchange, on a short list of venture-backed companies that have launched IPOs and initial valuations above the $10 billion mark. Pretty good going. It would make them the same size as SIBO in the parish of exchanges. Now, I would also like to note that IPOs are good because they help companies go from private markets, and of course NASDAQ is a very flourishing private markets business, through to becoming public and therefore acting like mature grown-up companies as they abandon what can often be a frat house culture of their initial startup to be viewed as responsible stewards of society. And that brings us to the one fairly interesting corporate announcement this week, which I think pretty much breaks every ESG rule in the book. Airbnb said Wednesday it will pursue legal action against a guest who held an unauthorized party at a home in Sacramento County, California, last weekend where three people were shot and wounded. Clearly with the IPO coming up, the job of investor relations for a publicly traded Airbnb looks like a challenge perhaps best for, say, somebody with combat experience and ideal, well, ideally previous media relations gigs in, say, minor war zones. Absolutely, finally, this week, we've heard about the wonderful huge amounts of additional data from Cornwall Investment and so on that you can find through the NASDAQ platform. Research by IHS Market shows the average age of the American road fleet is getting older, 12 years for cars on average, while one in four people has a vehicle, car or truck or SUV, which is over 16 years of age. That, of course, ties in neatly with the fact that what was the original purpose of the headquarters of NASDAQ in Stockholm, ladies and gentlemen? Well, as the petrol head, let me tell you. They actually assembled the Ford Model A there during the 1930s under license from the great Henry Ford of Detroit. However, we'll all have to keep an eye out to see if 18-year-old vehicles qualify for a postal vote in your state during the coming U.S. elections. If you're interested in Matters Automotive, I actually started a live stream on cars. It's monthly IPW in Patrick's Wheels. Pop by my Facebook page or YouTube channels, IPO-Vid, where you can also get the recordings of this particular extravaganza with Bjorn Sibern this evening, as well as on LinkedIn. So... On that note, ladies and gentlemen, next week we've got Alex Maturi, the former CEO who stood down just during the COVID epidemic for his planned retirement. He's going to be joining us talking about, well, more on big data, the world of exchanges and market infrastructure, and indeed indexing as a whole. Alex Maturi is to come next week.
This week, we want to thank a fabulous guest coming to us from Copenhagen, one of the many havens of the international empire of NASDAQ. Fabulously managed and a wonderfully managed one hour of conversation. Thank you very much, Bjorn. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you, Les Mal and also Martin Watkins, amongst others, for your many questions this evening. Absolutely great to see this positive IPO feedback coming through. I agree. Bjorn has been a magnificent guest, and we're looking forward to hopefully seeing him again in the near future. This has been IPO Vid Livestream 005 in Patrick's Opinion with myself, Patrick L. Young. Don't forget to pick up a copy of the book, Victory or Death, if you get a chance during the course of the next couple of weeks, wherever you might be, whether it's in quarantine, one side or the other of a holiday. And of course, check in Exchange Invest Daily, our daily newsletter, which amongst other things actually helps pay the bills for this live stream. Thanks to my team, Ola and Beata for their production, but most of all, once again, thanks to Bjorn Sibbern. Ladies and gentlemen, have a great week in life and markets. My name is Patrick L. Young saying thanks for watching.